Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that tells the stories of women with unusual, interesting, and inspiring careers. If you feel a little at sea with your career, are unsure what career move to make next, or need some inspiration for yourself about the options out there, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I sit down with a woman who has herself achieved success in her chosen field. Some guests have been the first or the only to do what they do. Others have quirky jobs you may never have considered or heard about before. And others just excel in an area I think you might like to hear about. Those of you who listen regularly will know that I'm really passionate about sport and that the theme of running, yes, I am one of those incredibly annoying people that actually likes to run, uh, has featured in earlier interviews with Nicola Miller and Alexandra Hemmingsley. So go back and have a listen to those if you're interested. My own opinion is that it's important to encourage women to take any sort of exercise that they enjoy, be that yoga, weightlifting, cycling, or anything else in between. But like many others, I am captivated by the Olympics and particularly following London 2012, which was such a highlight for us here in the UK. I mean, people actually made eye contact on the tube and chatted in bars, which like never happens normally. I now look forward to each new games with excitement. I find myself watching and listening and getting really into niche sports that I've never watched before, which have previously included synchronized swimming, archery and judo. So it goes without saying that I am really excited to feature our first Olympian on the show today. Donna Fraser ran a sensational fourth in the 400 metres at the Sydney Olympics in 2000 against all expectations. She was not really a medal prospect at all, but knocked her second off her personal best in the process during her career as a professional athlete, which lasted for over 20 years. She has a cupboard full of other medals, including bronze from both the World Championships and the Commonwealth Games and gold from the European Junior Championships. Donna's career was not all plain sailing, though. Following the highs of Sydney, where she was just really on the way up, she suffered an Achilles tendon injury that forced her out of training and competition for over three years at the peak of her powers. And she has gone on to say that in her heart of hearts, she is convinced she could have been world champion the following year were it not for the injury. But it was not to be, and in a further cruel twist, she was subsequently then diagnosed with breast cancer aged only 36. Donna's positive nature and extreme focus are evident when she talks about her approach to her illness, and I'm pleased to say that she's made a full recovery. She's now an ambassador for breast cancer now, and works to educate and support other women going through breast cancer diagnosis and treatment. Unless you're Jessica Ennis or Alison Felix in the US, or another huge name that receives big sponsorship deals, it's actually remarkably hard to make a decent living as an athlete, and Donna worked throughout her athletic career. She is now the Vice President of UK Athletics, as well as their Equality, Diversity and Engagement Lead, taking a forward-looking approach and driving change within sport to increase accessibility and participation. We started by winding back to Donna's early life, when she started taking athletics seriously, and at what point she realised it might prove to be a viable option for her. It's quite funny. Um, Well, I always say... I probably, it was highlighted to me when I was eight years old. Um, I've older sister, 10 years older than myself, and she loved athletics. And like many siblings, you want to follow in the footsteps of your older siblings. And I wanted to do everything like her, you know, dress like her. And obviously the age gap didn't quite work. But somehow my mum managed to get all three of us the same outfits. I don't know how she did it. Um, I was definitely when you talk about inclusion I was definitely included um so yeah I I just wanted to be like her and I remember um she had a pair of spikes 
personalized spikes that she'd have in the house and when she'd go to school I'd put them on stuff the toe with tissue and run up and down in the garden in them um so yeah it, it was I just I didn't know what I was doing but I just knew I wanted to do what she was doing um and then my primary school teacher then Miss Hughes, who I, I still to this very day remember the words she'd always say to us. Um, so I was chosen to selected to run for my primary school at the age of eight. And the youngest in the team, I was just like blown away by the older girls and thinking, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? And because I was extremely shy. So to be in that arena and when I mean an athletics arena and different environment, not with my friends, was a real eye opener for me. And a few years down the line, um, I was literally approached by a coach from the club where our athletics championships would take place to to come and join the club. Um, And that, again, was really me are you sure me do you mean me um and I had to go and literally persuade my parents to let me go and and the reason being is coming from a a West Indian background it was very much sport what do you mean sport that is not going to pay bills when you're older (laughs) um but again this is where my sister came into play and said to them you know this is probably what she needs let her you know try and experience it and if she doesn't like it then okay fine but this may be what would be ideal to get her out of her shell and find herself Mm -hmm. and yeah the rest is history I went down a cold I think it was a Tuesday or Thursday evening and and just saw people doing what I love to do and that was it I was like great this is my new home (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that was Croydon Harriers which was your club for pretty much your entire career is that right yeah it still is I'm a life member and uh, I think it's important for me to stay in touch with them as much as I possibly can because it is a busy life now um, and whether that is just to pop down and see see the youngsters training or go to their club dinners I will really try my utmost to make that time for them so Donna, you're the first Olympian that we've had on the podcast. I really hope you're not the last. I'm honoured. I'm honoured. <laughs> well, I am bloody honoured to have you. So thank you. Um, could you just give us a brief rundown of your very glittering athletics career? Um, you competed in the 400 metres, perhaps starting with your first gold medal in the European Junior Championships. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Okay, so... Um, I started out, well, if you go back to primary school, I started out running 55 metres. But then when I became a junior, it was very much focused on the 100 and 200. Um, And then I decided to grow. And some bright spark said to me, Donna, why don't you try the 400 metres? And I was like, are you serious? That is so far. I'd rather stick to the 100 and 200. But realistically, (laughs) I wasn't improving as much as my coach would have wanted me to. And I myself realised that I was I just plateaued. So the kind of person that I am, I give everything a go. And then the rest is, you know, you just see what happens. But you can't sit back and say shoulda, coulda, woulda. I'm not that kind of person. And yet again, my sister was by my side and she said, give it a go you know how to run a 200 literally jog the first 200 and when you hit the 200 meter mark just go like the clappers and that was exactly what I did and won my first 400 meters and then it was like everyone was up in awe and I'm thinking well that kind of hurt um but (laughs) it's gonna I won you know and that was my focus so 
that became the event I began to focus on. And then leading into my last year as a, a junior, um, came around 91, uh, the European Junior Championships in, in Greece. And at the time going into those championships, I wasn't ranked highly at all in, in Europe. I, I probably wasn't even in the top 10. Um, and, you know, it was my last junior race. I, I knew I was in okay shape, but you just don't know, especially when you're looking at rankings through the season and seeing who's running quick. And if you're not even in the top 10, you're not even going to be considered to, to win anything. Um, but then when I progressed to the final, um, and I always say this, I remember the night before my roommate, who I'm very still good friends with now, and she said, Donna, what are you going to do tomorrow in the final? And I, I said, well, I've done the hard work now to get to this point. It's, you know, there's several, seven other athletes there. It's who wants it the most. And the favorite going into that race was um, a girl called Anja Rucker from Germany. We go through this process where you go into the call room and, and general public don't know about what goes on behind the scenes as an athlete. So it's not the case of just we, we rock up and go straight on the, to the field of play. You have to go through a process where everything's checked and, you know, you sit in this room with all your the people you're going to be racing with, which can be quite daunting. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so that's where your your the test of resilience and focus is definitely challenged. And I remember seeing her and she was just trying to eyeball me out. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. Um, but in the actual race, the only bits I do remember is she was on the outside of me and she went off like the clappers. And then literally the last 50 meters, I just I just ran as hard as I could and closed my eyes across the line in absolute agony. I gave it my all, but it, I didn't have a clue of where I'd come. I was literally just so knackered, looked up in the crowd to the right of me and the British flags were going mad. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I won the European Union. <laughs> so it, it just really made me think that. It's, it's it doesn't matter what it says on paper if you believe and you give it 110% anything's possible so it's a it's a lot it's a mental game you know if I'd really focused on who would run quicker than me then you know it, it wouldn't I've, I've lost the race before I'd even started I love what Donna says there which was it doesn't matter what it says on paper if you believe and give it 110% then anything is possible that is just so pertinent not just in athletics but for anybody in your career I think bear that in mind take it to heart and keep repeating that to yourself whoever you are and whatever you do that was a huge learning curve for me and probably the best learning curve I could have had going into the seniors that that's just a huge jump you're almost starting right at the bottom of the ladder ladder again it's a little bit like going from primary school to secondary school I imagine <laughs> prime, prime example exactly that exactly that Donna went from being a junior gold medalist to competing at the Sydney Olympics, where against all the odds, she ran fourth in an amazing performance. I can't actually believe that I didn't ask Donna the question I'm now dying to know the answer to, which is, what's it like behind the scenes at the Olympics? The buzz, the excitement, the crowd and the adrenaline are all really imaginable. But now I'm feeling nosy about what the athlete's village is like, what happens backstage, and how it feels to be part of an Olympics opening ceremony. We'll all just have to imagine it, I guess. And if I get any feedback on that, then I definitely will let you know. Her training partner for the Games was Kathy Freeman, the poster girl of the Sydney Olympics, and an icon of 400 metre running. 
Cathy is Australian and of Aboriginal heritage, and the hopes of the Australian nation were pinned on her in the run-up to the competition. I asked Anna about her relationship with Cathy and how that came about. Oh, wow. Um, my coach, bless his soul, who passed away in 2015, he was... Um, bit of a rogue you know not the -the run-of-the-mill coach he was really out there flamboyant and I did a race in Gateshead that summer and um, a race director came up to me from Australia and says oh I hear your coach you're training with Freeman this summer and I was like pardon so he'd obviously (laughs) been having conversations behind the scene without me even knowing but I was just so excited super excited didn't quite know what I was letting myself in for, but what I did know is her coach and my coach coached quite similarly. So I thought, oh, at least I know what to expect in terms of the sessions. But of course, sure. the level of those sessions were going to be completely <laughs> different. I didn't remember that or think of it, should I say. Um, so Freeman, she is the most amazing individual. And again, you know, I always see life as a, a learning curve. And, you know, as an athlete and probably in, in life in general, you put people on pedestals when they're they're better than you. But training with her made me realize she's still just human. She's still just Kathy. You know, she still trains just as hard. As I do, she puts 110% into everything she does, her focus, like many other athletes, but she may have that edge. And it it was for me to find my own edge that I could develop. And I certainly did. You know, the first training session we did, she was just a dot in the distance and I was giving it. I was really giving it (laughs) smaller and smaller. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've got a lot of work to do. But I just remember in my mind when I finished that last rep that, Donna, don't show your knackered. Just try and keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. Because that's how my coach would tell us to be. You know, don't show your weakness. You just keep going. Peek yourself up and keep going. And I didn't realise, well, put it this way, how, when the spending the time with just Freeman and I, and I totally get why she came to the UK, the pressure she was under, during that year, she couldn't have possibly trained in in Australia. So I was honoured to be in her circles and we got on like a house on fire. We didn't once talk about the Olympics. We spoke about everything but the Olympics. And that was good for me because it relaxed me. There was no pressure. We just got on, did our sessions and then built the, the friendship and just went home. I went home and she went home and we'd do the same thing day in, day out. So we built a friendship, we built a sisterhood, we understood the 400 and without me even realising, I learned how to run a 400 and how how to be a champion and how to deal with pressure and without even realising it. So she, she was definitely a great person to be around. Wow, she really sounds like an incredible mentor and friend to have in your sport. And just talking about your career, the top level athletes like Kathy at that stage or Jess Ennis now are able to earn money in lots of different ways. But the reality, I guess, is that for some athletes, finances can be a struggle despite the public perception. Um, we know a few rowers, including some who have Olympic gold and silver medals, and it is not easy. At that stage, you were still juggling a job with your training. Can you just talk us through 
life like how did you manage it so I guess that that niggling voice of my parents in my ear saying sport is not going to pay the bills was my thought process Mm -hmm. so they'd always say have something to fall back on Uh, in sport you don't know what can happen you could be walking down the road to the shops and twist your ankle and that's your career done so I made that conscious decision to leave my full-time job at the St. Vincent and the Grenadines Tourist Board, which I loved. I loved it. I really did because it's where my family's from. But I, I was at, it was I was at that age where it was like, okay, my career I can always come back to, but my athletics yeah. career may not. So this is a choice I have to make. So that was in the spring of 96. And because it was Olympic year and, uh, I hated being a full-time athlete. I absolutely hated it, not knowing where the next buck was going to come from. And I was dipping into my savings. So I was approached by, which was then Seaboard, the year later, um, now EDF Energy, to sponsor five athletes leading up to, to Sydney. And it was the best thing that had ever happened. And off the back of that, they offered the five of us a role within the organisation to work part-time. We all went through an interview process. It was all done as you normally would in any organization. And I guess I probably got it because I was the only one who'd worked before. Um, I I probably I say that I don't know. Um, Or maybe it was just my smile. Maybe it was that. Um, (laughs) It's your sparkling personality, Donna. (laughs) Yeah, let's stick with that one. (laughs) Um, And yeah, so I was able to work part time 20 hours a week and still do train and still do my sport and they were hugely supportive in giving me that time off to go away and train and me being me I just wanted to make sure I did a good job on and off the track so it, it, that's where my time management skills came into play of, of, of going to work really early in the morning coming back having a little bit of a nap go training and then do some more work in the afternoon um so there was a lot of forward planning but yeah it it was it I loved it it worked extremely well and and luckily I did well in the sport so they could show that their support was was worthwhile um but yeah as towards the back end of my career where I I decided to go full time this is when I I retired I know my life is just crazy uh, <laughs> I I I come out. I decided to go full time and still come back out of retirement and try for the 2012 Olympics, and that was tough because working full time and still trying to train, and it was a big ask. But that that was tougher than when I was at my peak, um, and and mainly because of the travel because I was training at Crystal Palace before. But then the elite athletes moved to um, to Lee Valley and that's East London. So it was a bit of a trek for me. So, yeah, so it was a challenge. But like I said, my time management skills really came into play. And what other skills do you think are, you know, if you've had athletes who haven't necessarily had a job, you said you were the only one that had a job before. Do you what other skills do you think that you learned as an athlete that just were immediately transferable into the world of work? Because it's sort of one of those things where you know when people are making any kind of career change really it's sometimes hard to define the skills you've got from one thing that is so different to another thing that you're going to go and do 
Absolutely. And this is where I, I'm such an advocate for it, because as an athlete, you don't realise the skills that you develop as an athlete. They eventually come natural to you. It's the resilience, it's the determination, it's the planning in terms of when you need to eat, when you need to rest, um, what you need to do in order to achieve that next competition. It's all about that, all those soft skills that some people in an organization struggle to do, but we do it naturally. And I didn't realize it until I, I started working full time. Like, oh, Donna, how did you manage to fit all that? And I said, well, you know, I, I know when the deadline is, I work backwards. You know, you almost become your own project manager as an athlete. And this is the thing I'm trying to tell athletes that you've got skills that some people have to go on courses to develop, but you've got them <laughs> naturally. Um, so use them to the best, to the best of your ability. Um, you know, the whole, the drive, the goal setting, all of that is just something that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. It's the other technical stuff that would need to be refined, of course. Um, but you can go on courses for that or you can learn on the job. So like I said, I'm a true advocate of athletes doing something on the side. Yes, we want them to be completely focused on the sport because we want more Olympic champions in our nation. But at the same time, it's good to have that time out from your sport just to let your mind relax a little bit. And when I say relax, I mean, think of something else other than just what, what you're trying to achieve on in, in your sport. And you had a few injuries over time, which might be a bit of an understatement. I think your Achilles in particular was a bit of a problem. Can you just talk to me about the emotional challenge of injury when you're a professional athlete? Because... It's something I think as someone who loves to watch sport and although I am by no means any good but love to take part, I always think that must be incredibly challenging when you've got an injury, particularly at a crucial time. Uh, like I remember just seeing Jess Ennis on the telly with a foot injury just before the Beijing Olympics and the heartbreak that occurred following all the hours of sacrifice and preparation. Can you just talk me through a little bit on the effect that has on your life and how you manage that, Donna? You're absolutely right. I've The Achilles has been my Achilles heel, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, I, I didn't really know. Oh, you know, you have the odd little niggle, you know, you just rub a little bit of deep heat on it and you get on and, and carry on. But when it's a serious injury that puts you out, out for weeks, in some events, you can't get away with that time out of training because especially the 400 where it covers everything, um, you know, speed, endurance, power, all of that. You can't miss anything. And Achilles, people take for granted, like your big toe, we take for granted, but that's about balance. So mentally, it was extremely challenging. The first time when I first got injured and was out, it didn't phase me so much because I thought, oh, it'll get better. It'll be fine. Um, but when it kept happening and then I had to have surgery and the constant knockbacks, you think it's OK one minute, the next minute it's not. And, and then the process is just ongoing and there's tears and you're like, oh, how on earth do I get back from this? And still trying to feel part of your training group, but not wanting to go training because you don't want to see them doing things that you know you can't do. But it is it, you're just constantly battling with the emotions, but yet you want to stay quite focused and just think about what you need to do to get better. So 
this is where your support network comes into play and it, it plays an important role. You know, being, I, I decided, I made the conscious decision. I said to my coach, I think that I have to decide what sessions I come to because when they're running, I can't run with them and it's frustrating for me. I would rather come to the gym sessions where I can do that. I'll come to the sessions with the ones that I can do. The ones I can't, we'll have to do it separately because it's a mental thing here. Um, so I was able to manage that. But when I came home, you know, having my family understand what I needed to do, doing different things, again, the job, you know, having something else to focus on was great. Going into schools with on the crutches and talking about my experiences was still good because I felt I still had a little bit of value. Um, but mental, uh, mental health is just, you know, we're talking about it more and more, especially in sport. But because athletes are expected to, you know, nothing bothers them, but it does, you know, we just paper over the cracks and that's where those cracks eventually start opening and opening and spiral out of control. So in our sport, we're, we're really doing a lot of work in the mental health space to make athletes feel comfortable about talking about what issues they're going through, whether it's the injury or home issues, whatever it may be, because ultimately it can affect their performance without a doubt. It's like putting a a rucksack on your back full of bricks, you know, and once you offload, that's off of your case and you can get back on your focus. But yeah, my, my injuries were, um, crazy honestly my physio I can't thank you I still thank him every day and I'm like <laughs> what would I have done without you putting me back together and strapping me up and get back out because I was that type of person I was like, just strap me up just as long as I'm not feeling pain I can run and probably if I in hindsight I wish I hadn't done that in some occasions because I probably made the injury worse but you know you live and learn you do you do you do and just um picking up what you were saying there about mental health I was just going to ask you about uh, retirement from athletics and you know this is something that seems to come up more and more um, about retirement of uh, professional athletes and sports people there's a real loss of people talk about a loss of identity and direction and when you're so when you thrive on competition so much and that's part of your day-to-day life Mm -hmm. did you have a struggle with that or had you had a kind of phased retirement anyway with or how did that go for you yeah I don't think sport once you've been doing it for so long it, it it's in your blood you know you're used to that routine getting up going training eating at certain times and sleeping at certain times and that never leaves you um and transition is a big deal in sport um and again it goes back to having something else to fall back on just in case you you're you're um your career is cut short or it's a natural, you know, natural end to your career. Um, I really do think that I, I've, I found it quite easy to transition because I worked all the time and I knew my career would come to an end. I wasn't um, crazy to think I would carry on running forever and a day. Um, some, some people do, because I don't know how they do. I take my, my hat off to them. The masters, for example, they're still running and I'm like, how do you do <laughs> <laughs> I can't even think about running for a bus, let alone getting on, getting bikes on. So I'm sure that is not true. Honestly, <laughs> I mean, I do try and stay fit, but I have to take myself away from what I know as fitness. If I, I know what I'm like, and I've done it already a couple of times, is if I set foot on a track, I'll be like, yes, right, here I go, I'm on it, I'm going to 
get back into it and go and run for my club. But then something in the back of my taps me on the shoulder, say, Donna, your time is done. Leave it alone. So I need to take myself away from the environment. I still get butterflies when I go to a track. It's bizarre. So I will go and do go to the gym and do things that is not quite linked with my sport. I, I removed myself from the, the norm as I know it. Um, but all of that within athletics, we do have a performance lifestyle team who work with the athletes to help them see that pathway. So it's not such a, oh, I'm finished now. You know, lottery funding is no longer there. I now have to think about think for myself almost. And and again, it comes back to the support network, the parents, you know, their friends. It, it's all of that understanding that that regime and it sounds really really harsh but it's not it just when you're in elite sport it does become a regime of you know this is what you do every single day it's that that routine that will change um and for athletes to understand that that's the hardest part because they're so used to doing it that way so since you retired you now have the very posh title of equality diversity and engagement lead um at uh, UK athletics and you are in charge of essentially diversity and inclusion can you just tell us a little bit about that Donna uh, what your role involves what you do and what you're working on yeah so um EDNI is a passion I developed when I was working at EDF energy I chaired the BAME network there for two years and it was that was when I actually blossomed really in terms of if I'm in a position where I can make change, I want to be involved. And, and that that is what sparked me to get up every day. And I'm thinking if I can make a difference to one individual in my day, that's something that I want to do. And this job has allowed me to do that. So in essence, I've I wear two hats within UK Athletics. One is as vice president. Uh, which is a voluntary role and that's around the governance of the sport to ensure our sport is being is operating how it should um so within edni um again i have two sides to that role one is embedding our core values which we have five of them into our organization and that's that's through our processes our practices and when i say that i mean like our recruitment process our induction process all of our policies to make sure that it is equal and and the language is right. Um, so that that's something that I need to obviously work with departments and work that through because no one has done my job prior to myself. So it's not just focusing on the nine protected characteristics under the Equality Act. It is looking at how we are as an organisation, our values, our behaviours, how we operate as an organization and that everyone understands what that means in their day-to-day -day role so it's changing behaviors it's around culture you know mm -hmm. what is our culture it's looking at how we operate have we got things in place are we addressing initiatives to do with underrepresented groups um, it's all of that and it's bringing it all together to ensure that our culture is how it should be talking of culture there have recently been some pretty high-profile controversies surrounding some professional sports bodies, with reports of bullying coming out of British swimming and British cycling, some accusations of discrimination flying around, and the sexual abuse scandal in American gymnastics very justifiably raising some serious questions about the way in which individuals within sporting organisations conduct themselves whilst chasing the dream of medals. 
I asked Donna how she thought athletics was doing on culture compared to other sports. Yeah, it's so bizarre. You know, I, I keep thinking to myself, you know, when I was competing, did I experience any discrimination? I think our sport in athletics is the most diverse sport mm. because it, you, you've got male and female, you know, all races take part globally. Um, what I would say is within the organisation, that's where my, I come in in terms of is our organisation reflective of our sport and society? And, and those are the questions that not only us, but other organisations are looking for. And by this process with the equality standard is addressing that. Um, so, yes, we do have some work to do. Absolutely. I think the key thing is that we, we recognise that we do. We have recently just worked on implementing a non-binary category in road racing. So that's allowing individuals who do not identify themselves as male or female to participate in road racing. So that was um, orchestrated up actually from our Scottish athletics uh, partners who had requests from from individuals saying that they need to do this. We in the UK hadn't had that. And when I say the UK, because there's UK athletics, as I said, Scottish athletics, Welsh athletics. <laughs> um, but we felt that we should do this as a sport and it shouldn't just be certain areas, irrespective of whether the request has come in or not. We should be on the front foot and have these things in place to make sure we're opening the doors for people who want to participate in our sport. So it's trying to go down the road of that inclusion approach. Um, so, yeah, we, we are doing good. We are definitely in terms of ethnicity. Obviously, um, we can see within the team we are lacking Asian participants. We know that. But there's those cultural barriers that we need to address. And we are looking at that um, in terms of disability. We are definitely on point with that. And the Paralympics has, has shown that we're ahead of the game with that. But likewise, although, you know, you've got the sport, but you've got the organisation, we still need to look internally at our demographics. Um, so that's that's my piece of work that I'm looking at and where we want to aspire to be. Um, in terms of gender, we have to abide by the Code for Sport Governance. And in that, there are a number of requirements as well. And one of them is to achieve at least 30 uh, percent of women on board. Oh, wow. So you have a quota system for that. So we have to because it's all linked with funding. All sports need to, to adhere to that. Um, and out the back of that, we all sports need to develop. Well, they don't have to. I mean, it's I think it's the right thing to do, especially if it's linked with funding is a diversity action plan, which I've led on. And a lot of that, again, is piecing together the work I'm doing around the equality standard, the value stuff is bringing it all together. Um, in my opinion, the 30% women on boards is absolutely brilliant. I think we should go beyond that. It, mm -hmm. Just because we achieve the 30% doesn't mean we stop there. But we also have to be mindful that board terms only come around every four years. So it's making sure when that does come around again for recruitment, that we are recruiting from all diverse pools of, of talent. As I said earlier, Donna was diagnosed with breast cancer aged just 36, which was a surprise to say the least. Breast cancer is a huge diagnosis, whoever you are, whatever you do and however old you are. And I know that every single one of you listening to this will know somebody who has suffered with the disease. It is estimated that in 2018, over 266,000 women in the US and around 60,000 in the UK will be diagnosed with breast cancer. 
Donna alludes to it here, and interestingly, Ninora mentioned it in last week's episode, that discussion of cancer in black and ethnic minority communities has previously been quite taboo, and this is something that Donna is now working really hard to change. She was in full training and ready to race when she first noticed a problem. That that was probably the... Um the challenge most biggest challenge of my life probably I thought 400 meters was hard enough but um I guess this took the biscuit but at the same time I I always try and see the positives in things and it, it, it's amazing that that breast cancer journey um has has changed my life for for the for the for the good of me I think and I always felt that I was an individual that enjoyed life and you know respected everyone and all of that but I probably didn't respect life as much as I should have because you think you're going to live forever when you're young you know you're invincible Um, but when that blow came it was like right okay Donna this has been put in front of you any opportunity that passes you you are going to grab it with open arms yeah I was 36 and it there's no family history and you know all those things you think well it, cancer only you know attacks people who aren't fit and all of that you know you start thinking why me why me um but it was definitely um a positive journey I, I always say I was one of the lucky ones because I called it early enough mm-hmm. um but on that journey I have managed to meet some incredible women and men who have experienced it who have gone through such a, a, a hard journey than I have and they too have come up the out the other end so I did make it my duty as it were to talk about my experience and just raise the awareness of early detection um in women and men and not discounting because around 400 men are diagnosed with breast cancer in the UK so the numbers are there um, and that's where my links with breast cancer now came about because I felt I needed to as a black woman to talk about it because in our culture we don't talk about the c word um that much so if I could help in any way and whether that is encouraging people to go and do have their mammograms or you know touch look feel all that kind of stuff um it's it's all of that it's the awareness Mm. I can tell my story you know not in granular detail but it's just sharing saying yes I went through that you need to check yourself you need to be ahead of the game you know your body better than anybody else just do it. It, it, you know, it's not a, a major thing. So yeah. And out the back of that, a lot of people have written to me and want to talk to talk to me about it, whether they're on their journey or they've just been diagnosed or they know someone how to deal with it, how, how to speak to them, all of that. I've become a counselor night, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't mind, you know, if I can help, I'm more than willing. You said you were caught early. Were you actively checking your breasts? if you don't mind me asking or did you find yours by accident no it as an athlete you really become body aware and I found the lump and I was like this is odd and it was it was during the time I was training extremely hard I was kind of stressed trying to juggle everything and you know busy 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 and I thought I need to keep an eye on this as all the advice tells you keep an eye on it if it changes then you know just you know be mindful and there was no change, but it was like the size of a pea, um, mm. rock hard. So I went to my GP and she said, um, it's more likely a, a, a cyst, but we should get it checked out. 
Um, and she knew my, my background as an athlete. And I was like, whatever it is, you know, just get it sorted because I need to get back on track. Um, it can't interfere with my training. Yeah, exactly. It was exactly like that. Um, so I went had the biopsy, but they said regardless, it would need to be removed. So I had the lump removed and the biopsy was going on in the background. And literally two weeks after the, the lump was removed, I, I went to compete in, in Austria. Oh my God. <laughs> I know. And it was 100 metres. But I thought, oh, well, it's shorter distance. But I didn't take into account that when you come out of the blocks, you really drive out and that agony I was in even now I'm thinking about it what the hell was I thinking but again that's the athlete mindset you know it doesn't matter just wrap me up I'm out there um so yeah so when though the results came back and said that I, I I had breast cancer it was definitely a blow and a half and I was like wow where the hell did that come from and and I do put down my personality and how I deal with disappointment and all of that to my sport because at first yes I was devastated you know the tears and everything and and literally it was okay Donna what do we need to do and I said to the care nurse I said to her I said, right what do we need to do tell me what I need to do bam 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 I'm all good let's do this and through that whole process I'd obviously told my family then and they were fine because I was fine if I was breaking down every five minutes they would have been devastated but I I was just doing what I needed to do and the care nurse even said to my sister, is she all right? Because she's handling this rather well. Really too well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly. And she said, no, that's how Donna is. She'll see the funny side of it, regardless of whether it, it, it's not good or not. She will just deal with it as it is. Um, so, yeah, so I was given the option, kind of long story short, is um, whether to have a mastectomy or not or to go down the route of having radiotherapy and all of that. And I was like, oh, gosh, here we go again. Another decision, like when I'm injured, do I go for surgery or don't I go for surgery? Um, but it was literally the case of saying, you know what, Donna, do you want to live or die? Do you want to live, live every day worrying? Has it come back? Has it come back? Just get rid of it. For goodness sake, you're still Donna. Yeah, I just said, let's cut to the chase. So December of 2009, I had a mastectomy and I'm still me. I'm still here and everything's all good. Breast cancer is so variable, isn't it? I mean, like when you get that diagnosis initially, it could mean anything until you have more information from a small lumpectomy to a full mastectomy and chemotherapy. So Donna, it's so encouraging to hear you talk so openly about it and to raise awareness I have to hold my hands up and say that I am actually really bad about checking my breasts regularly. You so need to. I'm telling you off now. Sort <laughs> it out. <laughs> Consider me duly told. That is for sure. That's definitely really good advice for everyone to make sure we are all breast aware because it is so common and we need to be on it for early diagnosis. So guys, check your breasts. Definitely. And, and you know, I'm, I don't want to ever be the person say, oh, well, you know, I'm okay now. It's not about that. It is raising the awareness. And I know so many women have gone through traumatic experiences and I can't even imagine what they're going through. But just if I can be that little bit of a comfort blanket, because I understand, 
mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I that's invaluable to me. So yeah, I'll probably get inundated with with messages, but I don't mind. And that honestly, I don't. I mean, I've had people talk, call, message me from St Lucia, and it, it's just crazy. It, you know, they can identify because they themselves who are going through that do not know how to deal with their immediate family either so it's both ways the family don't know what to say to them and they don't know what to say to the family and it again that's emotions that is energy that is best saved for if they're they need to go through treatment and chemo and all of that it's best bottling all that up Breast cancer is everywhere. It's a big deal. It's a horrible, horrible disease. If you want any more info or you need any more advice, then check out Breast Cancer Now, which is the organization that Donna represents. They are at breastcancernow.org and there's loads of resources there. What a woman and what an eventful life Donna has had. It's been such a privilege to chat to her. I met her at an event earlier this year, which is kind of how this interview came about. And I can tell you now that she is just as lovely in person as she actually seems here. That's it for this week, though. Donna is our final guest until 2019, but there'll be a couple of little bonus episodes popping up for you over the festive period. So I really hope you enjoy those. Thanks for listening. I do appreciate it so much. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave a nice review on our favorite podcast site as it helps others to find us. More importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing The Ceiling and we'll hopefully see you next time.